qualities that I've discovered about Salada tea bags <laughs> is that they have these little sayings on them. Uh, it's uh, entertaining when you're a yogi and kind of, uh, they're like omens when you're a teacher. So tonight I got the saying, most things are difficult before they are easy. (laughs) The talk tonight is about patience. The Pali word for patience is kanti, and it means tolerance, it means acceptance. I'd like to talk about acceptance or patience as an aspect of the metta practice. That first phrase, that first traditional phrase, may I or you be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. That sense of being protected from inner harm is being protected from the hindrances. The first few days of retreat, you know, it's like we're being bombarded (laughs) by the hindrances. So sometimes it'll feel like we're in this battle between, you know, this wish for metta for ourselves and others and attachment to pleasure, aversion to unpleasantness, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. Those are the five hindrances for those of you who are new to the practice. Um, I think that you've probably had a taste of what it's like when you feel this seclusion from the hindrances. It's, it's seclusion. That's what concentration practice is meant to do, is to seclude us from these hindrances. That's the safety. Whenever Stephen and I go to New Zealand, there are about a thousand acres of bush around the meditation retreat center that we go there. Um, Sometimes I go on self-retreats there. There are many trails. And there are two things that seem to, uh, I have to battle with every time I walk the trails. One of them is spider webs. And I've always been, it just seems like this particular place, I don't know what it is about it, but I can walk through a trail in one morning, and then the next morning, it's just completely filled in with spider webs. It amazes me that a spider, you know, the spiders can fill in the trail so completely in a day. And the other thing that, that happens on these trails is there's a fern called bracken fern. And here it grows about this high. But in New Zealand, it (laughs) grows kind of almost tree size. So the bracken fern will fall into the trail every day. You know, you you kind of push through it, and you climb over it, and you get through it. And Steve often carries a machete with me. (laughs) He kind of goes through um, with a machete. It's, it's incredible. They just fall back in and you're stuck with these ferns the next day and the spider webs. Oh. You kind of get the picture. <laughs> it's like, no, <laughs> let me through this. Well, that's how I feel the hindrances are in practice. It's like uh, you might feel like you went through it one day and it should be clear already, you know. Well, I got that done with. There shouldn't be any more sleepiness today. But then the next sitting, there might be sleepiness or restlessness or that same tape about, you know, so-and-so. Or, you know, it's just incredible how these just repeat and repeat and repeat. Uh, our own inner world sticks up these obstacles to inner peace. These inner hindrances are the obstacles to inner peace. We're suckers for aversion. We're suckers for attachment. We're suckers for doubt. 
You know, we fall for it. We fall for it. We fall for it. So working with these hindrances in the mind or obstacles to inner peace take great patience because they don't disappear overnight. Mm-hmm. The attachment to pleasure, the aversion to unpleasantness, they're very deeply rooted in the mind. And you can see them. In some ways, our suffering is incredibly simple. It'll all boil down to something very simple like aversion to something unpleasant, or it'll, it'll kind of boil down to being attached to something pleasant. Uh, but we, we get tricked. We don't see it that clearly. One of the ways that uh, the understanding starts to deepen in the metta is by understanding what that phrase means. When you really understand that you're wishing yourself to be free from that suffering, from that constant being thrown off balance by attachment and aversion, that this, these are, that, that, that you're wishing someone to be free of that or you're wishing yourself to be free from that. When that understanding is there, it really feels wonderful. That's part of the metta. The depth that will come in the metta, no matter who you're wishing it for, whether it's for yourself or any being, uh, a lot of it comes from the understanding of what you're wishing. If you think about the suffering that happens in this world, the roots of the suffering is greed. It is hatred. It is delusion. Whether it's coming from outside of us or inside of us. So to wish anyone to be free of it, it, it's just uh, the most wonderful wish you could have for someone or yourself. It's very powerful because it's so deep. This is a quotation from the play, The Search for Intelligent Life in the Universe. It's a great title. The Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe. If evolution was worth its salt, by now it should have evolved something better than survival of the fittest. Yeah, I told him I think a better idea would be survival of the wittiest. (laughs) At least that way, the creatures that didn't survive could have died laughing. (laughs) You'd think by now evolution could have at least evolved us to the place where we could change ourselves. a good point for Darwin. This concept of of change, I think, is real important for us to reflect upon, especially in regard to the spiritual journey. Because the spiritual journey is so vast, uh, there's this vastness and and change in terms of uh, deep psychological patterns or the, the deeper-rooted hindrances can at times seem slow. So say, like, we're at this metta retreat. Uh, it could be a Vipassana retreat, and I could be talking about mindfulness, but this is a metta retreat. So in regard to metta, how much were you really able to feel for yourself today or for someone else? And if you look at all the moments in a day, how much of it was really there? You know, the change from that perspective can seem a bit tedious. Um, The time that I was doing metta for five weeks in Australia a couple of years ago, we were at a convent. (coughs) I was in a room that was next to a place where they did mass every Sunday. And the priest, I was just remembering this in a group I had today, There was a priest there that had a dog named Fritz. 
And Fritz uh, wasn't a very tame dog. He was really out of control. And the priest used to walk his dog around underneath my window all around every day. Plus, he would bring Fritz to Mass every Sunday. Fritz used to stay outside my door. And Fritz loved to bark, you know, just loved to bark and bark and bark and bark. And, and plus, he loved to run away from the priest. So the priest almost constantly would be yelling, Fritz! 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 I mean, it was just like this constant... <laughs> it was just this constant background noise, like, you know, birds, but this was Fritz, Fritz, Fritz. You know. And one time, I actually had to get up and look out the window, you know, and like, look at, <laughs> who's Fritz? You know, and it was this little dachshund, you know, it was like about this big, and I couldn't believe I could get so, I was so angry, you know, I mean, here I was doing this meta, may I be happy, you know, and I was just getting, I hated Fritz, I mean, for weeks. <laughs> there was no meta for Fritz, you know, it was just... <laughs> And even now, when I hear myself saying Fritz, you know, I can feel that, you know, <laughs> the repetition of that word, you know, for five weeks. And it's just sort of, you'll find, this, <laughs> you'll find yourself doing this practice, you know, and somebody next to you might move, and you know, you're, here you are trying to create this meta, and you just are furious at the person. You know, and all they did was breathe, you know. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like they did anything serious. It's not like Fritz was doing anything to me, you know. But it's just sort of ironic, you know, how we get ourselves in these kind of funny situations like a retreat. You know, and here we are with Metta, and, you know, we want to kill the cook. Or, you know, it's just um, incredible what happens. So the change, the change can seem slow in terms of how much we're actually feeling it. <clears throat> in regard to ourselves, so few people really love themselves. We're never perfect enough. You know, we're not pretty enough. We're never quite handsome enough. Or maybe we're not smart enough. Maybe... Uh, we're not clear enough. Depending on what we value, maybe we don't have enough metta. Maybe, um, maybe we don't get enough done. In our culture, that's usually the worst, that we never, never can get enough done in a day. Uh, somehow, there's never a sense that we're good enough in our culture. And that's a, that's a tragedy, and it's what, the, what becomes very visible when we're on a retreat, on, when we're doing metta, is this self-judgment. It's extraordinary. So developing this unconditional acceptance of ourself takes patience. Sometimes I'll do the phrases, you've heard me say them, may I be happy just as I am, or may I be peaceful just with what's happening, May I love myself completely. You know, it's, it's important to use phrases that actually help you connect with this patience at time, of being, being okay just where we are now, even if we've just said something really stupid or maybe we've done something that we feel bad about, but really being able to cut through that pattern of hating ourselves, of not being good enough. Patience is a form of metta for ourselves. It is accepting where we are right now. Impatience is a kind of aversion. Impatience is reaching out into the future for something that isn't happening. It's getting ahead of ourselves. It's really okay to be where we are. There's a kind of flower in Hawaii called Cup of Gold. It uh, starts out as a very long gold flower bud, very, very big. Stephen's mother taught me that in February, when it flowers, you can bring in this flower bud, but you have to pick it just at sunset. And you, put, you pick it a certain way. You have to cut it right at the right place, and you bring it in and put it in a vase. 
And then you can actually, like a time-lapse photography, uh, watch the flower open. It will open just after the sun sets. So I find it amazing that I don't take the time to experience this more often. You know, we're in a rush a lot in our life, and it's so amazing that we miss these awesome things. In February, I actually took the time to watch one, and I got very scientific about it, and I got my journal out, and uh, you know, I had my pen out, and I just sat there observing it. Uh, <laughs> and I was writing about it, and it was very shy and slow and kind of seductive, and this, you know, it took a really, it took about an hour for the whole thing to happen. And, uh, the scent came out at a certain time. It was amazing how I thought at the end of that hour that I knew how it happened. I knew how I had solidified in my mind, I knew how Cup of Gold opened. And I was unconscious that I had made this assumption. And the next night I went out and I saw another one. And I was just sort of like, well, maybe I'll watch this one. You know, it was just sort of, I'd gotten, you know, uh, not very wholehearted about the situation. So I brought it in. And I was doing something else, but I had it near me. Uh, I was writing. In, a, in about three seconds, this flower just popped open. It was just completely different than the first one. You know, just, it was so totally different than the first one that, you know, it just cut through that, taking it for granted. Uh, it was a really powerful teaching for me because uh, ultimately we're all very unique. You know, we have, we're, um, it's like our opening in the spiritual journey. It's like a flower. We're all like flowers opening. And it's very easy to uh, assume that we're all the same. It, we fall into patterns of looking outside of ourselves and thinking, well, that person's like that, that person's like that, or we'll read something and that's how it's supposed to happen. But actually, it's, you know, we're all very unique and it will happen for us in, in our own way, in our own time. The hardest thing for human beings is to tolerate differences when you think of so much of the suffering in this world, you know, the wars, the wars over religion, you know, over belief systems, never mind over color. You know, it's just, you know, or just look at the male-female thing. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's just amazing to see how difficult it is for us to tolerate differences. Being able to accept the way that we are in any given moment, that definition of patience is acceptance. Uh, it's part of it. It's, par- it's accepting that we are unique, that we do open in our own way. I remember that retreat in Australia. Uh, I knew that the metta practice would be hard for me to give to myself, so I waited until I felt like I was ready to do it. Uh, when I went in to see Upandita for the first instruction, he said, I said, well, how long should we do it for ourselves? And he said, five or ten minutes. And I walked out thinking, uh-oh, you know, <laughs> you know, because that's all he thought it would take for me to steal it for myself and then to move on to the benefactor. And it was so difficult for me. I finally, I had a teddy bear that I brought to the retreat, a little teddy bear, that I eventually put up on my altar. And until I could feel metta for her, my little teddy bear, I couldn't feel it for myself. You know, this isn't in the texts. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I couldn't tell Upandita this. You know, I couldn't tell him, well, you know, I have this little teddy bear. You know, and <laughs> if you know Upandita, it's just... He can't even relate to us having pets, never mind, you know, a teddy bear. So, uh, and it was hard for me to have patience. 
with that. You know, it seemed kind of pathetic, you know, here I am, <laughs> you know. But after, I trusted it, and I could accept it, and finally, you know, I didn't need it at the end of the retreat. Um, but that's what I'm encouraging you to do, is really to get where you are. I wasn't happy with this. I mean, it wasn't like I was saying, oh boy, I need my teddy bear to do metta. You know, it wasn't like I was proud of it at that moment. Um, but it was where I was at. And we really have to get, well, where am I at with metta? And most of us in this culture are pretty dry. It's really hard. So wherever you are with it, if you can start there, great. I really um, appreciated the way that the Buddha taught metta as I did it, because the whole sense of going with what's easiest, to, to not push it, to not push the opening of the flower. And so you start with yourself. That's how it's traditionally taught. But if it's not working to do yourself very much, you do the benefactor most of the time. And if you <laughs> benefactor is difficult, you do a dear friend. And if none of that's helping, you find something else. And if you're needing to do mostly vipassana, that's good. You know, it's like it's all okay. So being able to um, go to what's easiest is the, is the patience. It's the metta for ourselves. And it's what allows us to start breaking down the barriers. It's interesting that we have so many barriers in our relationship to ourself. Um, that's part of breaking down the barriers in metta. So backing off, going to what's easiest in metta, is actually a way of strengthening our love for ourselves. It's helping us gather the resources. And it takes great patience, because we all have limits. I was teaching at a retreat center where the people who owned the retreat center didn't want me to tell in this talk where it was, because they were afraid no one would come when I told the story. But there's this one point in the year (laughs) where uh, these termites come out in this, in this place. And it's, it was actually only for a couple of days, really. It's a great place. Um, and I, was, I had this beautiful cabin to myself. It was wonderful. And there was no electricity in the cabin. And I had this book, that, this wonderful novel, and I couldn't keep myself from reading it at night. So, you know, I was in one o'clock, two o'clock with this flashlight reading this novel. And at some point in the evening, these beings started, it was like this rain. It was incredible, just pouring off the ceiling. They were, they were termites. Um, and at first, I just decided to take a dualistic approach and say, well, it's my cabin. <laughs> and. <laughs> And I decided to just ignore them. Um, and then after you know, some ra- more rain, I decided, well, I'll just go to bed. And <laughs> they were crawling all over me all night. And by the morning, you know, I really hated termites. You know, there was, you know, there was <laughs> my dualistic approach didn't really develop much metta at all. So the next night, I decided to take a non-dualistic approach and decided that it was our cabin. (laughs) Um, And I just, you know, stayed there for a while, and it didn't work. So then I decided to take a non-dualistic, a a dualistic approach again, and I decided it was their cabin. (laughs) And I moved out. I, I moved out onto the ledge, you know, and this is working with our limits, because I couldn't experience any metta while I was, while I was in the situation. It was just overwhelming. So I moved out, and by the next morning, I had all this metta for them again, you know. I didn't, 
I backed off. You know, I found a place where it was workable. And this is, this is really important in terms of the metta practice. It's not just a passive, always taking, taking it. It's finding the place where it's working for us. And sometimes that means removing ourselves from a situation or doing something about it. Also, in terms of being able to send the metta to ourselves, when I first started to do it, um, when I would say, may I be happy, this real cynical voice would come in and say, yeah, right. (laughs) And then I tend to have a body that breaks down a lot, and when I'd get to, may I be strong and healthy a body, this voice would come in and say, fat chance on that one. Yeah, and there'd just be this incredible cynicism that would come in. And I'm sure you've experienced, I'm sure by now, that you'll have these little voices that sabotage the metta, you know, yeah, right, you know, sure. Uh, and then when I would do the 11 benefits, you know, I don't know if you've been trying that, uh, but there was one, one point that you get to pleasant dreams. And for the first two weeks of doing the metta, I had these incredible nightmares. You know, it was just, and I'd get to pleasant dreams, and I'd be like, sure, you know, that's a joke. Uh, and after, for two weeks, they were just incredibly intense, and then they stopped. So it, it, this, this, again, it takes, it takes patience to just keep at this practice and see what happens. Um, if you haven't had a lot of conditioning for care for yourself, that's how difficult it will be. You know, if you've had more conditioning of being cared for, then it will be easier. Uh, and if it's easier for you, great. You know, enjoy it. Don't feel guilty. <laughs> you know, have a good time. Um, you'll have your turn when it comes to difficult people. You know, I mean, if it's easy for you. Just, just keep going and work with it, and eventually you'll hit a barrier. So we need patience in working with the hindrances. We need patience in regard to breaking down the barriers with metta itself, whether it's a barrier inside or a barrier outside, in feeling the oneness in this world. We also need patience with developing, um, no, patience with the deeper psychological patterns. I call these karmic knots. A karmic knot or knots are things, you know, that tend to have happened to us in our life that are really, you know, they're like deep wounds. There's something that in our lifetime that's one of the things we really have to learn to work with. So most of us have these karmic knots or deep psychological patterns, and maybe um, sometimes we might think of it as an Achilles. And it could be fear of betrayal, or it could be fear of death, or it could be fear of sickness, it could be... Um, fear of abandonment. It could be uh, fear of intimacy. It could be um, the need to seek approval. Now, I could go on and on. Um, <laughs> but these patterns, when, they're, when they are like a karmic knot or an Achilles, they're usually around for us for a long time. And there's a tendency uh, to have aversion to them. The way that that works in the metta or the vipassana is that there'll be a sense of wanting to get rid of it, or maybe there'll be an intention to get to the bottom of it, or there'll be an intention to resolve it. You know, there'll be this kind of um, sense of having to dig it out and get it over with. And in metta or vipassana, that that kind of tendency to get involved with these patterns in this way, it's actually aversion. It's sometimes it'll seem like a sense of urgency or enthusiasm, 
but it'll be reinforcing the aversion if we keep having that attitude about it. It's, uh, it's, a way, it's just changing the attitude about it. So the intention needs to be learning how to work with it. It's a very different intention than trying to get rid of it. Learning how to work with it so that, say, it's fear of rejection. When that feeling of fear comes, instead of kind of going, I'm going <laughs> to overcome you and this is it, uh, that's not freedom. Because the aversion to it will keep giving it to more and more power and there's less and less of a sense of that maybe it'll come up two minutes from now or maybe it'll come up two years from now or tomorrow. But if we haven't learned to work with it, we'll always be afraid of it. If we think we've gotten rid of it and it comes up again, we hate it more. And that's not the freedom. The freedom is being able to say, oh, (laughs) fear of rejection. Oh, I know you, you know. Well, let's see if I can work with it. And if we can't, that now we have the tools in metta um, to just shift to metta. Go back to yourself. You don't have to open to it. Um, if 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 you need to go back to the breath even and not go into it, you have that choice. And the idea is that you learn when to go into it, when not to. And you know that not going into it is not avoidance, it's, it's strengthening yourself, it's resting. You learn how to rest until you have the strength in that moment to work with it. It's a very different approach. And if you get a, the right dose of it, and you learn to work with it, you'll feel strengthened, you'll feel like, oh, well, you know, that, maybe I can actually work with this. And if you've done that in one day, once, that's a lot. You probably won't want to touch it for another day or two days because you, these, the, I'm talking about difficult patterns, not the kind of, you know, medium hard ones. These are the hard ones. No, you just take a rest. When we get too big a dose and we drown, it's weakening. And we feel debilitated and we feel more afraid of them. And when we take a little dose, and then we go, well, okay, now I'm not going to look at that again for another day or two days or whatever. That's strengthening. Some of these patterns take a long time to learn to work with. And they take a lot of um, strength of metta for ourselves. It takes the acceptance. And it takes the mindfulness, learning not to identify with them. What I find more and more interesting is how powerful the metta is at actually going to the core of these karmic knots. it's, It's still... I'm still in the process of being kind of surprised at how powerful it is for people. So we need to have metta with, I mean, patience with the hindrances, with metta, developing the metta, with working with the karmic knots. We need to have patience with uh, liberating ourselves on the deepest levels, with developing wisdom. This is a quotation that um, keeps coming in and out of my life in my talks because I like it a lot. The woman who wrote it is called Ruth Sanford. She wrote this when she was um, invited to South Africa in 1986. She was invited over there to help um, work with groups working with their emotions around apartheid. A compassionate person seeing a butterfly struggling to free itself from its cocoon and wanting to help very gently loosen the filaments to form an opening. 
the butterfly was freed, emerged from the cocoon and fluttered about but could not fly. What the compassionate person did not know was that only through the birth struggle can the wings grow strong enough for flight. Its shortened life was spent on the ground. It never knew freedom. It never really lived. Uh, Liberating ourselves, giving birth to understanding, it's a birth struggle. Uh, It's not always so easy. The patience it takes to free ourselves entirely is enormous. You know, and the patience to be with other people in their own birth struggle and not to interfere, not to interfere with our own, not to interfere with others. If you think about what a caterpillar or worm is like, you know, the thing that's funny about us is that human beings, we don't tend to identify with the worm. You know, we don't, we don't usually identify with, you know, that sense of chewing and chewing and chewing and chewing and just crawling around. It's not something we aspire to. <laughs> but that's a lot of our life, you know. And then not so many of us aspire to a cocoon either, but that's part of the process too. And mostly we identify with that sense of flying. Uh, And it's amazing because if we learn how to go through that once, if we can actually be with that process of caterpillar to cocoon to butterfly, um, then we know how to grow because growth requires that. We don't just do it once, unfortunately. No, it's over and over we learn this process if we're growing. And that sense of not staying in the cocoon too long, you know, sometimes, you know, we have to wait, but there's a, there's a ripening. There's, it's all timing. Sometimes uh, we want someone to help us out, like in this thing, but it doesn't work because we don't get strong enough. We do have to liberate ourselves or we do never fly. And the thing um, about our defense system, our defense system is that sense of I or ego. It's something to respect. It, our defense system is what enabled us to be sane in this life, relatively, you know, speaking. When we're born into this world, we're born into a world of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral feelings. And the Buddha taught that we have no control over this. With each moment of consciousness, there's a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. And this is constantly changing, moment after moment after moment. And this isn't a very secure world, to put it mildly. It's a very insecure world. So one of the things that happens as we, you know, go from infancy to childhood is we develop a defense system. And it's like a wall. It becomes um, our identity. It's our sense of a separate self. But as we grow older, it can become a prison for us. And part of the spiritual journey is understanding. We develop enough understanding so that we don't need the defense system as much. The more we develop mindfulness and understanding, the less we need the wall or walls. The butterfly flying is another metaphor for that, of of being free of that sense of a separate I that's permanent. If you think of a flower opening uh, and that inner flower, that's the, the opening to oneness. 
what we tend to do when we recognize that this opening is important is we tend to want to rip the petals open. You know, and even if you see a flower, even if you start to take a flower open even a little bit, or if you fool around with a cocoon and you play around with it a little bit, it doesn't work. And it's the same with us. It's like the minute our system knows we're in a hurry with this process, if you're in a hurry to develop metta, (laughs) forget it. You know, the minute you're kind of going, I need more metta, you know, I have to work harder, you know, that isn't exactly relaxing. You know, it's not, the system will not start to open if it doesn't feel safe. The place where we need the most resistance is actually with resistance itself. And if you think of that place where we just don't want to open, you know, it's like, whoop, and all we want is we want to open, but there's no way we're going to open. And that's when we're really in the cocoon. It's okay to be in a cocoon. It's okay not to be able to open. It means we don't feel ready to open at that moment in time. And it's learning to have patience with that. Because the more we allow where we are, you know, that ripening will happen. Because we're not interfering and our systems will feel safe. When we plant a seed, I love the uh, way that um, you can take a teeny little seed, like a grass seed or a flower seed, and put it in the earth. Springtime is a wonderful time. Uh, And you see this kind of hard, dark earth that you have to dig up and make a little softer. And you put the seed in, and you cover it with earth. And it's pretty amazing. You know, because then you have to let go. And you wait. And, you know, you can do your little song and dance. You know, you can water it and, you know, kind of hope for sun and, you know, weed it. Um, But basically, there's a sense of waiting and trusting. And that's how our opening is, you know. You can, you put in your time. You come to a retreat and you do the best you can. And that's, that's creating the right conditions for opening. But then it's a matter of having some trust that where you are is okay. You know, it's not trusting in anything particular. It's just trusting the process itself. It's trusting, you know, that sense of um, the birthing process. I remember when my sister was pregnant with her second child, the child she was due, she was due something like June 13th. She was born August 3rd. And my sister was quite young when she had her children, very young. And I think around end of July, you know, she started going on motorcycle rides and boat rides, and it was just getting, (laughs) she was doing everything to have this baby, you know, bounce, bounce, bounce. Uh, August 3rd, you know, a month and a half later, you know, she, this little girl came out, and she, you know, she always had a mind of her own. <laughs> she, still, she still has a mind of her own. And it's a, our, our spiritual journey is similar. Yeah. We just do what we can, and then it's a matter of trusting that there's a process going on that's bigger than us. The Dharma, the truth is much bigger than us. And it takes great patience. Having patience with the process of life itself uh, is another way that we need to have patience. The Buddha taught the first noble truth, which is, he said that all life is suffering, which means that all life is changing. Um, And because of this change, because of this constant change, we never know what's going to happen. 
So the first noble truth means we never know what's going to happen. There's this constant uncertainty that we live with. And no matter how much we plan, you already have probably noticed how much you plan. No matter how much we plan, we never really know what's going to happen. We can't control the weather. We can't control the black flies. We can't control growing old. Growing old is one of the best teachings. Um, We can't control how much unconditional love we have or how much wisdom we have. That definition of patience as acceptance is so beautiful because life is this constant change and what makes life workable is an acceptance of that on on deeper and deeper levels. So the acceptance will melt the ice. It helps us relax. It helps us go deeper in our understanding. One can learn so much from nature. Nature has that sense of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And sometimes it's a little easier to open to the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral in nature than it is with human beings. So if you just go outside and you see the chipmunks, usually they're quite pleasant. Uh, And then you might see a bee, or you might see a bird then you might see a slug. Maybe that's not pleasant. Maybe it's neutral or unpleasant. Maybe you see a rat. Um, there's just this myriad uh, skunks, rats, uh, mosquitoes. They haven't hatched yet, but they will. <laughs> it's due any second. Um, snakes, ants, deer, bears, you know. It's wonderful, this, this range. Uh, and it's Um, the metaphor of a flower opening is one way one can see it but I think the metaphor of a tree ripening is often more helpful for us really in terms of the spiritual journey you know if you think of those wonderful maple or ash trees that line the road and you feel how old they are and how um much ripening has happened. That's really what the spiritual journey is. It's a very slow, deep maturing and ripening. If you plant a tree, which is a wonderful thing to do, you'll get a sense of that. They actually take a long time to grow. Stephen and Chandra, our daughter, and I planted a tree in Hawaii the first year that I moved there, Steve is from there. And the first five years, it just hardly, it, it didn't look like it grew. It just <laughs> stayed there and I'd go out there, <laughs> grow, grow. No, but it didn't grow, it didn't grow, it didn't grow. Uh, we'd put fertilizer, we'd water, we'd leave, we'd come back, leave, come back. Uh, and about the eighth year, it just started to grow. And now it just grows and grows. Uh, We don't have mangoes. We probably won't have mangoes for about 10 more years. And that sense of waiting and just watching something ripen, it's it's a nice way to, to look at yourself. Because we do come into this world with some spiritual qualities that are probably more developed than others. So some people might be really, have really good concentration. And you might look at that person and think, oh, what a great meditator. But they might really be lousy at generosity. Or, you know, they might not have any metta hardly developed. Uh, everybody's different. Some people might have a lot of metta and not much detachment or equanimity. So it's, it's really helpful to just get a good sense of oneself, a sense of one's strengths and one's weaknesses, and then just see that it takes time to develop certain aspects, and one is good at others. I remember uh, 
this teacher that I had from India named Deepama, she seemed to have developed a lot of uh, spiritual qualities. I think the thing she had developed most was concentration. She was, had amazing, amazing concentration. She also had developed metta very powerfully and also wisdom. She had really worked on both. It was quite evident. One time in a group, someone asked her what her mind was like. And she answered, in my mind there were three things. Concentration, metta, and peace. And then the person said, is that all? (laughs) (laughs) And she said, yes, that's all. It's nice to run into these beings once in a while. It's possible. She was a wonderful little old lady from Calcutta that was just uh, had worked a lot in her lifetime and in other lifetimes. They were very developed, and it's possible for us to do that. It takes patience. If you think of a tree or a plant, a flower that you plant, it's, nothing is ever wasted. Every, every sun drop, every rain drop, every bit of compost you put onto it, now that all makes for the tree ripening and growing or the flower. And it's the same in the practice. It's like every time you remember to come back to the present moment when you've been wandering and work with the metta, it's not wasted. It's really important to remember that. Nothing, nothing is wasted in this practice. It's really developing. Let's sit for a few minutes. We be peaceful. <laughs> May we be liberated. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.